we bought stuff to throw it away for a really long time. I just think we've stopped expecting real beauty and real enjoyment from these things. I think a lot of that's been replaced by you know, much better functionality, obviously. And I don't know, I just, I'd like to call that to someone's attention. everybody, my name is Michael Howard, and welcome to Musea Podcast. My name is Tag Kristoff, and I shoot architecture, photojournalism, portraiture, and still life. I guess my trajectory into photography has been pretty circuitous. I studied economics in college. Lucky I started college a little bit early, but I studied economics, and I went to work for a city bank when I was like 20 years old. And I basically hated it, and I knew within a few weeks that I couldn't do that. So I left, I went back to school, I got a BFA in industrial design, and I liked doing that for a while. After school, I moved to Italy because I thought that was a place to be as an industrial designer, and I ended up finding a job in a photography studio there, not in a design house. And so I was sort of apprenticing for a pretty well-known fashion photographer and helping manage a roster of fashion photographers and worked there for a couple of years. And I guess it was there that I really sort of got serious about making my own photos. And I started shooting film for the first time. I bought a little Rolex 35. I started shooting around Milan. And the first summer that I was, I was living there, I came back to the States and took a long road trip and kind of didn't know what I was going to do with myself after that summer. I didn't know whether I'd go back to Milan. I had gotten into graduate school and I took a long drive across the country and ended up finding these old dead malls that I was fascinated by, shot a bunch of pictures of those, and sort of became uh, addicted to being out on the road since then. Nice. I was looking at your website, kind of your about page. So it seems like you've uh-huh. done quite a bit of schooling. Is that correct? Yeah, I did that via in economics. And a lot of my interest has been just sort of in design and architecture. So mm-hmm. I've, I've always kind of peripherally been around those. And I guess I've found that photography is the most effective way for me to explore those things. I used to wish I had been an architect. I don't think I do anymore. But photography is just a really great way to engage with big subjects, you know? Mm-hmm. You can engage with them in a way that it's it's a little harder to with writing and it's a little harder to kind of as a person. You are willing to risk a little bit to get as up close to things as you can. It's, uh, it's pretty rewarding. What came first for you, writing or...? Well, I guess it was serious about writing before I was serious about photography. I didn't okay. I don't think I realized how powerful they could be together. Mm-hmm. And I, I also didn't have formal training before I went to graduate school. I just kind of carried around a little digital camera, didn't know much. And it wasn't until graduate school that I got really serious about it and did some formal studies and kind of mixed them to good effect while I was in grad school. So I don't know that side of you, so you can... Tell me, what are the things you write about, or how do you pair the two together? I write for a lot of design publications, and so recently I've been doing a lot of portraits of designers and architects, because that's where a lot of the commissions come from. Magazines are a lot more willing to work with you when they know exactly what you're giving them, so mm-hmm. they can tell me, hey, take a portrait of this guy, they know what your portraits look like, and they're happy to send you out to, to kind of meet them. But as I've gotten to know publications a little better, they've gotten to know my interests a little better, and have a lot of kind of explore bigger issues and problems. And so I've done kind of serial portraiture and architectural photography to kind of tell long-form stories about certain architects. I've done a lot of still lives of the work of certain designers that kind of shows their progression over the course of their careers. 
and different movements in industrial design specifically in the 20th century. And I write a lot about graphic design and architecture and kind of how that relates to what is going on in society now. And yeah. Nice. One of the overarching themes, I think, for me with the podcast is we're talking about how people live a creative life, but also pay their bills. So for you, is that the photography that pays more? Is it the writing or is it like a 50-50 thing for you? I'm just curious. It's a close to a 50-50 thing these days. It's a matter of being able to juggle a lot of things, as, as I'm sure anybody who's listening to this podcast knows intimately well. I think the the key is really just finding a niche for yourself and know what it is that you talk about and being able to kind of articulate that clearly, whether it's through your imagery, whether you're telling a really consistent story through your imagery, or whether you are kind of going after the same sorts of clients or whatever it is. But if you do solid work and you do it over a long enough period of time, people get you sort of inevitably. And so I think it's just about telling a strong story consistently. And it's been really cool for me because, you know, I wanted to be an architect back in the day, and I didn't go to architecture school, so I couldn't be an architect, obviously, but having just been so consistently interested in architecture and keeping friends who are in the architectural world and exploring these big questions has opened that world up for me. And so as a photographer, I can be in that world. And it's all just a matter of balance and consistency, I think. Yeah. So I've been following you on Instagram for a while. Your project, America's Dead. That's kind of where I found you and fell kind of in love with what you're doing. So tell me a little bit about, in your own words, what that project is about. You know, man, it's been so many different things. So I found these dead malls while I was driving across the country. I had a book about a chain of stores called Best Products. And they commissioned some experimental famous architects back in the 70s and 80s to sort of build these versions of these big box stores, right? So what is today Walmart and Target? 30, 40 years ago, Walmart and Target as well. But this one specific company had made these really kind of postmodern, whimsical versions of those big box stores. And the company went out of business in the 90s. There were still a few of the, the original buildings that remained intact, but all of them were closed. And so I thought I would search for those things. And I did that long drive. I, I found these malls while I was looking for these stores, but I didn't find any of the remnants of the stores left because they're all essentially gone. There's one that, that's still remaining in Richmond, Virginia. But so... I sort of got into photographing kind of like the, not so much ruins, but the, the sort of detritus of the consumer economy, mm-hmm. just sort of our consumer culture, I guess. And I, I think it's pretty fascinating to think that we not only kind of throw products away, we also throw buildings away. And uh, I think kind of contemporary 20th century, 21st century America is really kind of society that really, really ever did that. And uh, I think they're kind of important architecturally. I think they're important uh, socially. I think it's important for the future of our cities to kind of understand what these things are and these places are. So it started out sort of just as my obsession with those things and sort of the desire to document them. And I named a Flickr photo album America's Dad and sort of uploaded those to that album. That album just blew up. And I sort of started calling other things that. And I was shooting this stuff most consistently more than anything else. And it just sort of has gone from there. And I think it was it's sort of difficult to keep America is dead because of the name from being a political thing. But I tried to avoid allowing it to be at all political. So at the heart of it is this exploration of American space and kind of what it is, what it means, what it has become, I think. And there's a lot of writing and thought about it. And I don't think there have been terribly good photos of it. So I sort of thought I would take it upon myself to explore 
the things that people like James Howard Kunstler were talking about in their writings. So it sort of started off as that. And I've done 49 states so far. I've photographed everything from a Las Vegas hotel being demolished to every single shopping mall that Victor Gruen designed that's still standing. A couple of them have since been demolished since I've photographed them to just housing typologies and, I don't know, signs and all of these things. And I think lately it's it's been a little harder to avoid kind of having a political bent to things. And so I'm trying to do a little bit more portraiture and kind of tell more human stories about these things because I don't think it's very effective as a story if it's just sort of thing that people see as like forgotten ruins. You know, I don't think that the gravity of the giant dead seers makes sense unless you sort of understand that there are lots of workers that are unemployed because there are so many closed down seers or whatever it is. So it's sort of evolved a little bit, but at its heart, it's really just an exploration of, of kind of that uniquely American kind of space that is businesses come in, build something, people flock to it, and then it sort of falls out of fashion and people forget about it and they move on to another thing. And it's, it's pretty incredible what there's still left around the country, but, but actually it's all almost gone. It's things from that, that golden age of the post-war to you know about the late 80s, early 90s, there's some pretty interesting architecture in that period of time, which we don't, I don't think we have enough distance from it yet to kind of truly understand how important these things are and how important they kind of are to our patrimony and to to kind of the history of our country and and all those things. But I'm just trying to do my tiny part to show people that it's there. And it's been shooting things that I think generally are pretty ugly on the face of them, but kind of finding some beauty in them that's truly there. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed it's a lot of exteriors. I was curious, yeah. is there a reason why you don't get, is it like a trespassing thing or is it the interiors of the malls don't interest you as much? <laughs> well, they do. It's just there are very few interiors of these malls that are actually intact and sort of look like they did a long while ago. Mm-hmm. Definitely a trespassing thing is part of it too. I've been almost arrested like dozens of times. So <laughs> it's one of those things where maybe it's kind of a pragmatic just accident that there are more exteriors than interiors, but. I think that the exteriors, especially of the malls, I can make these images that sort of look like architectural renderings, and it's not until you look at them a little bit more closely that you sort of realize that they're ruins in a way. Whereas with an interior, they're just, interiors get kind of refreshed much more often, so it's a lot more clear exactly what time that came from. You can photograph a mall that looks like it's from the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, and it's a little bit less visually appealing, so I just guess I haven't spent as much time trying to do that. And, you know, 90% of these malls that I photographed are closed to the public, so short of breaking in and taking a, a whole cache of lights with me and a couple assistants, it's pretty hard to get images in a lot of these places. Yeah. Brian Ulrich done a fantastic job of it, but he's about 10, 15 years older than me, and he got there before anyone else did. So I don't think it was... a quite as hard to take a large format camera into one of these places and get a really cool shot of the interior, you know? I mean, you see, there's a whole, I don't know, subculture of urban exploration photographers out there that Mm -hmm. do, I mean, it's different than what you're doing, but they're interested in, you know, old rundown things. But I think a lot of their angle is more of apocalyptic in nature, I feel like. I was interested in you, for you, is that any sort of topic you like at all as you know this sort of apocalypse theme because there's a lot of a lot of that within american culture i think right now even entertainment wise that floats through yeah you know my instinct is just really not 
toward the apocalyptic. So I think it, it would be easy to read that into my work. You can look at an image and see it's just, you know, big empty space. And so it looks like it's sort of post-human or something. I think the thing that sort of unites me with a lot of these urban exploration photographers is just this kind of will to, to go into a place that people generally don't think about or don't realize is right next to where they sort of just mindlessly pass by every day and going to the mall that people still shop at or going to school or going to work or whatever it is like there is a whole world that people just generally don't see because it's either closed off by a fence or it's just not something where you can go to dinner with your friends or hang out so yeah i mean it's i think that's what binds us but as far as the apocalyptic thing goes i hope despite the kind of somberness of the image that there's more of sort of an optimism behind it because there are all these beautiful spaces that I feel have so much potential. And I hope that in some way people will see these and understand that there's value to the style of building somehow that could make it a legitimate place that should be kept intact and used as something that people would enjoy now. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. I was just curious just because you never know, you know, influences behind people and what they're thinking at times. With this project, how often are you shooting for it now? So I go out about two or three times a week. And I'm on the road generally about a, a week out of every month. This summer, I was pretty lucky to be able to spend about six weeks straight on the road. I bought an old Buick, 79 Buick, and drove from Brooklyn to my new place here in LA over the course of about six weeks. And so I was on the road continuously for that. I do it as often as I can possibly afford to do it. Mm -hmm. And whenever I have free time and I'm not shooting for an assignment that keeps me somewhere specifically or, you know, working in a place that requires me to be in an office for a few days, I'm basically out on the road. So I moved into this place that I'm in June 1st and I've spent a total of maybe two weeks here. So. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot. How do you, I'm interested in how you logistically plan something like that, like a cross-country trip. Are you targeting certain cities, certain areas? Like, are you looking at the demographics, like, you know, city size, populations, or is it more you're going off the architecture history and that's what drives you? It's a little bit of both. I guess I generally choose an endpoint and I'll try to hit, regardless, I have to go out of my way to get to some city that I haven't been to before. I've got a big chunk of the Pacific Northwest that I haven't gotten to yet. I'm planning a drive to Alaska in the spring. But generally, there's no city that I wouldn't at least like to see once and see what's there. There are several that have just had a lot of things that I didn't feel I photographed well enough or that I didn't spend enough time photographing. And so I'll, uh, I'll definitely try to make it back there. Um, the South is just full of amazing, amazing places and things that I think are underrepresented in kind of the American consciousness, I like to spend as much time down there as I can. Everything in the Southwest, uh, which is where I'm from, I'm from Santa Fe, but everything in the Southwest has kind of become a little bit of a trope. So I like photographing down here. The light's amazing, but as far as, you know, roadside photography and just kind of photographing the architecture here, it's hard to shoot here and come up with anything that's too original. So I think the Pacific Northwest is like the next place that I really like to explore, but I could spend all of my time in you know, the Rust Belt in the South. And I don't think that there would ever be an end to the cool things I could find down there, you know? Yeah, there's so many little towns down here. It's 30 minutes and you're in another one, <laughs> pretty much in any direction. Yeah, right. uh, now that I've started doing more portraiture too, the South is just is the absolute best place to find mm. characters, you know? Yeah. People who are just completely implausible anywhere else and they'll talk to you for hours. And right. <laughs> 
how do you, um, uh, again, I'm just kind of interested in how people pull off projects like this. So when you go out, are you like just cheap hotels? Are you like sleeping in your car? Like how are you surviving on food and sleep and things? I, I used to do the sleeping in the car thing quite often, but I tried to stop doing that. I've probably spent like a month string all the nights together in my car total, but generally no, like cheap motels, which also make pretty good photographic subjects and you meet great people there. Mm-hmm. Camp sometimes, but I also... I've got a lot of friends out on the road, so it's a mix. Nice. So obviously with your work, there's, you know, with your architecture background, there's kind of a, just the physical design you're interested in. I feel like, you know, you're balancing design, you're balancing just the content of what you're shooting, and then you're working in color. Haven't really seen a lot of black and white out of you. So I guess talk about balancing those three things, how you balance those in terms of what you're wanting to communicate through your work and what's the driver there. Well, I think color specifically communicates a pretty specifically kind of 20th century idea of what photography is and what America looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like an overused paradigm, I guess. You know, William Eggleston, Stephen Shore, everybody who's kind of a well-known photographer of Americana from the 50s onward has kind of worked in color. And I just sort of found a kind of a home in that space. I shoot digital and film, but I feel like it's just the best way to communicate these places. Do you feel like it's more, sorry to interrupt you, but do you feel like color is more fact-based? Does that make sense? Or like black and white might be too of a romantic view? I think it can both be romantic as well as sort of, I think black and white, there's a distance there. It's sort of critical. It's sort of forensic, you know, to use black and white, it can also be quite romantic because it makes it look really old, it makes it look really sort of, there's always been the tension in photography between black and white and film and digital. And I think that black and white just, there's, there's too much distance between you and your subject when you use black and white. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the main reason. I have shot quite a bit of black and white. I just, I don't really show that stuff. I've done some darkroom work and it's, it's fun. It's a really intimate process. I just don't feel like it communicates what I'm looking for. I don't want there to be a sense of nostalgia in these things, or really a sense of romance. I really want there to be kind of a less critical distance between whoever looks at the photo and me. <laughs> and so that's pretty much why I choose to use color. I also think it's just a great compositional device, right? It's great to be able to play with color. And I think a lot of the stuff I photograph, you know, it's from a time where color was important in design. And I think my palette is uh, pretty specifically American. You don't see the same kind of rich reds and rich yellows in most European photographies. You can see, you know, oversaturated blues and yellows in Japanese photography quite often. But I think there's something to that kind of vaguely Kodak feeling that we have kind of owned for so long in American photography that it just communicates Americanness in some really kind of subtle way, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm not generally photographing high design either which I think sometimes photographs quite well in, in black and white. And if I were shooting case study houses, there's a pretty good case to make for use black and white. I think the color just, it's an interesting thing about it. I haven't really thought about my own use of color as much as I have of other people's, I guess. I have a good friend who I shoot with quite often who um, is from Florida. I'm from New Mexico. And it's so funny, we can shoot the same thing. And when we kind of process and get our images to where we're happy with them, mine are invariably more kind of red yellow than hers which are blue green and i grew up in in santa fe where there's sunshine all the time there's no water 
I just have this idea that you know, where you grew up really kind of affects your sensibility for color. And I noticed that across so many photographers. I love that. It's interesting. A, a New Mexican photographer and a California photographer, I look a little similar, but somebody from the Midwest, their use of color when they really kind of get it to where they want it to will look completely different from mine. So. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the podcast and share with you what we're doing here at Musea Lab. We've got a wide range of papers for professional photographers, everything from affordable luster prints up to the best quality cotton archival prints in the market. We print with Hanmule and Canson papers, with Epson printers and ink. You can learn more at musealab.com. If you're a wedding photographer, family portrait photographer, if you're a fine art photographer, then use prints for an exhibit. We can handle all those needs for you. Uh, just check us out at musealab.com, and we would be glad to help. All right, back to the show. So you mentioned that you're diving into portraiture a little bit more recently. Why is that, and how that been for you? The easiest answer for that is that a lot of commissions come for portraiture. That's, like I said earlier, that's something that's um, pretty easy for publications to get their heads around. I can offer them a decent portrait of somebody that they need a portrait of. Right? I've worked with many, many magazines over the years um, in different capacities, and so it's a little bit harder to sell pictures of forgotten architecture than it is to sell portraits. So I made a conscious effort to try to do that a little bit more, and I found kind of to my amazement that I enjoyed it, and I'm just focused on that a little more. It's still sort of maybe about like you know a tenth of what I shoot but it's really great to spend some time with people in the context of where they are. Because a lot of these portraits are just the people that I'll meet somewhere and we'll take their portrait there. Uh, I've done a lot of artists and architects in their studios. It's nice to meet them in context and sort of understand who they are, both through their context and then take their portrait, understand how they interact with the camera and, and kind of see how that, really is a reflection upon their work a lot of times. I photographed a pretty famous author that I was really intimidated to photograph about maybe three or four months ago. He's about my age, and I was just terrified to photograph the guy. And I met him at his apartment in Brooklyn, and he was just terrified of me. He was, like, shaking, and he he, <laughs> he was really scared to look at the camera. He, he was, like, really awkward, and it was just really cool to realize that there was that tension there between the two of us. And it was really kind of a confidence boost for me to be able to kind of help him learn how to get his portrait taken and also just to truly understand that everybody, no matter how famous or how successful they are, is human. And it's a really lovely thing. It's just a really great way to connect with, with people as well. And so I don't think I would have been as willing to continue doing it if I didn't enjoy it. But it's been sort of a nice thing. It's just been in about the past year, so I've been doing it a lot more frequently. And also, probably in the past year, I think I've got the only portraits I've been happy with. I had taken some before, but they were always pretty pitiful, I think. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's nice to, to feel a little bit happier about the result. Mm. So. When you do film, this is just a... I don't get into gear stuff very much, but I was interested for you, especially people that during film, are you developing it, scanning yourself, or do you send it off? I scan myself. Okay. So I do I do shoot digital, though. I'd say about 75% of what I shoot nowadays is digital. I just use a Nikon DF, and I use a Zeiss lenses, and I've got one point lander portrait lens. I use all manual lenses. But with film stuff, 
I have a photographer friend in London who swears by the technique of photographing with a macro lens your negatives on a light box. And mm. I wasn't convinced that that was the best way to do it for the longest time, but little by little I've kind of come around to his way of doing it. I never got great scans from a flatbed, no matter what the format was. You know, Obviously you're going to get a slightly better scan if it's a 4 by 5 or even a 6 by 7 or whatever, but I just never was really happy with the results that I got from scanning myself until I started doing that. And for shows and stuff, I'll send it off and have something Imacon scanned. But generally, stuff that's on my site, stuff that I show on Instagram that happens to be filmed, um, that's pretty much all scanned myself. Nice. So that's how you do it, the macro on a light box? Yeah. Yeah. I've nice. got just a little kind of flat panel LED light box and sort of a tripod with a 100mm macro lens and photograph away. Takes all day, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> kind of fun you get to you get to sort of re-meet the image that you took a couple months ago and it's a little cathartic you can put some music on and just hang out and take some pictures of your pictures and right. it actually works quite well interesting yeah. so i think you've touched on it. it's a theme within your work is this consumption culture we live in and i guess i feel like things that we make as humans are always a reflection of where the culture is at in a way so like the things people were making 40 50 years ago is obviously a reflection of that time and the care and thought they put into it versus maybe the things that are being constructed now. I guess, what have you learned about where we were as Americans 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe where we're headed through your understanding of just the architecture? Do you feel like things are getting worse in terms of quicker, faster, cheaper, and not caring as much for things that are longevity and quality? Well, I hesitate to always say things are getting worse. I don't necessarily feel that way. The, the situation always kind of seems ominous and there's a lot of turmoil right now in the world, but I don't know that we as Americans have changed a terrible lot over the last 30, 40 years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, things that were built in the 50s and 60s and 70s weren't built to last forever. So it isn't as if we have in the past couple of generations switched from you know caring to buy things that last a lifetime to, at least since the 1930s, 1940s, we've been kind of into consumption and planned obsolescence and and things that have really kind of shaped the way that our country looks and works. My thing really is that even in these kind of things that were designed to be throwaway back then, I don't know if people are as conscious as they are of it now back then, but even these things that were designed to be throwaway back then, there's beauty to them that I think we've sort of lost I don't know if it's a question of formality of the design or just sort of ideals in design. You know, modernism really believes that design could solve all of the problems in the world. You know, Pruitt-Igo in St. Louis was a giant housing project that was just beautiful and it was demolished you know, 25 years after it was built because it fell into disrepair and just wasn't taken care of terribly well. But the architects who built that building which incidentally was the same architect who built the Twin Towers and built several buildings around the country that kind of still stand and people don't really realize that they're there. There were just these ideals embedded in that design that I think we've lost. And I think that's really what it is. It isn't the materials, it isn't kind of our culture. You know, Kmart's been around since the 60s. Walmart's been around since the 60s. We bought stuff to throw it away for a really long time. I just think we've stopped expecting kind of real beauty and real enjoyment from these things. I think a lot of that's been replaced by, you know, much better functionality, obviously. And I don't know, I just, I'd like to call that to someone's attention. There's certainly a movement 
you know, over the past 10, 15 years to have more beautiful design and more beautiful just everyday things. But I think that that's sort of isolated to a group of people, mostly millennials, who, you know, really can afford to think about that stuff. Whereas before, at least up until the 60s, you know, everything that you bought was generally relatively quality, even if it was kind of meant to be thrown away after a while, and probably pretty beautiful. And I think that's really the thing that's changed. That's really apparent in our architecture. You have these lofty, beautiful buildings that were built all over campuses in the 50s and 60s and 70s, skyscrapers that kind of had these formal ideas behind them, houses, cars, certainly, and all that sort of just not there anymore. If you've been to the Neon Boneyard in Las Vegas, you see all these beautiful old signs that, thank goodness, are being preserved. Nobody would want to preserve like a, you know, Hardee's or Carl's Jr. sign or like a McDonald's sign from now. But yeah. if you saw one from back then, it's absolutely <laughs> stunningly beautiful. Even though its function was the same, you know. You're right. So and it's easy to say that when something has a patina that it's that it's beautiful when it's, you know, been there for a long time. But I just find it really hard that most of the things that we kind of fill our daily lives with now will be thought of as beautiful in the same way that we can think of these things as beautiful now. Mm-hmm. There's a really great I don't know if you've seen this, there's a really great documentary about sign painting it was on netflix i've seen that it's fantastic yeah uh, about the art of hand-painted signs you know it's being lost but then you know some it's coming back in some small ways but and there again you know, it's sort of limited to cool hit places that other people go they're not really going to think about that they don't really know you know they just want to get a good deal on something i think that's just really reflective of the larger ships you know it's it's not cost effective for a giant chain of stores to hire a sign painter in every town to paint their signs right so it's just not going to happen anymore which is really too bad but i just think that if there was more thought about these things and more kind of thoughtfulness about the way that we built the kind of most ordinary parts of our cities and our, our and filled up our homes this would be a lot nicer of a place to live you know <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's something that we talked about before we started recording is just, at least where I'm at with Nashville, as I feel like we're seeing, there's been a lot of issues here and a lot of fighting over architecture because, you know, the town's booming and people are wanting to tear down these historic spaces where, you know, these famous recording studios are in a certain building or whatever, and and they're wanting to replace that with a another kind of boring condo structure because they know they're going to make a ton of money off of it. People have been here forever. They're like, you know, we feel like Nashville is selling its soul in a way. And so there's that kind of feeling within the city losing its character. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much just an inherent part of the way that we think we have to grow in this country. And I think that's kind of one of the central things about America is that it's just sad that we can't see beyond that short-term profit. But designers and photographers can't do much about it. You know, architecture is controlled by the person that pays for it. And unless you can somehow miraculously get these really important places listed on a historic registry that saves them, there's just no way to do it. Yeah. And, you know, New York, same thing, LA, same thing. It's just crazy to see all of the things that have been destroyed over the past couple generations. And, man, you guys are still at the right time in Nashville that you can save a bunch of good stuff. Right. Yeah. So People are out. trying to. Yeah. They're trying to. <laughs> so, what's specifically on the board to be torn down? Sadly, I don't keep up with it as much as what I should, so I'm probably part of the problem. But uh, too busy trying to just keep my head above water here. But there was a big fight over a studio, a really famous studio, where there was just like some of the best 
recordings of some of the most famous albums ever were recorded. And it was in like a lower part of a building, you know, it's sitting on obviously a bigger piece of land. And so they were, people were just fighting for that to stay or at least preserve that physical space in some way and not get rid of it entirely. Like just don't bulldoze the whole lot, like build around it in a way. I remember that was last year and I, they had like a, I think a fundraiser or like they had a, I think they had a party in that space or something to raise awareness to keep the discussion going. But I just haven't seen anything pop up on it in six to nine months. And so I unfortunately don't know what happened with that, if it saved or if it just got torn down. Bummer, man. I'll look it up. It's just unfortunately really tough to tell somebody that owns a piece of land that they can't make as much money as they possibly can off of it. You know, that's the heart of the problem. Right. So it's on your Instagram feed. And one of the more recent photos you have is of uh, this guy named Greg in East LA in front of this like auto store. The interesting story behind that image. Yeah, so Greg was a pretty crazy guy. I had stopped my car at a mall that just closed down in San Bernardino. So Greg is from LA. I have no idea how he ended up all the way in San Bernardino, but he said he had just got out of prison. But I was shooting an old Montgomery Ward like car service place. And he walked by and he's like, oh, are they going to tear it down? I said, well, no, I don't know. They've just closed it. I don't know what they're going to do with it. And he just started telling me the story about the whole place. And he wished that he could have talked to the city council and helped them turn it into a casino because it would be the most important casino in the world. And he was, you know, he was really upset about it being torn down, but for different reasons than, than I was. And then he kind of started walking away and I started taking more pictures. He asked me about my camera, and we just started talking. He told me the entire life story. So he had just gone out of prison. He's been in the crypt since he was 16 years old. He said he was 55. So he's been in there for most of his life. He just got out of jail, apparently had been in for 10 years, told me he had killed multiple people. Interesting to talk to. He just he sort of had a fascinating story. He told me about it a nephew of his that was killed at Crenshaw High School, I think, in Los Angeles back in the 80s, and how he basically spent the last 30 years of his life trying to get revenge for that killing. And um, he had his fists up almost the entire time we were talking. and told me that he had every single bone in his hands broken. And he just kept kind of coming closer to me, and he'd, like, throw a couple jabs in my direction. I was just, like, convinced he was going to pop me in the face once or twice <laughs> and uh but he just kept talking and talking and i just kind of nodded my head and agreed with him and, and but he had some pretty interesting things to say he had some opinions about the government and about the way that california is run as a state and about the way that you know the kind of country is going and sort of how it's, it's impossible for someone like him to to really pick himself up and, and kind of start over anew as he really would like to do at this point he has a wife and kids somewhere and I got the courage to ask if I could take his portrait. So I had my camera hanging kind of down at my shoulder the whole time I was talking to him. My car was like 10 feet away, just like wide open. I finally got the courage to take his portrait. And he just sort of like instantly melted. The hard facade came off and he smiled and he was just really nice. And he kind of, he gave me a couple of these tough guy poses, but he was really stoked to get his portrait taken. Hmm. And he was a really nice guy. He was trying to get to a bus depot to apparently get to a greyhound that would take him to Louisiana, which is where he said he was going to start his life over. And uh, it was about five or six miles away, so I offered to give him a ride, and I ended up giving him a ride and shook his hand. And it went from me thinking that he was going to, like, you know, pop me in the face to giving him a ride. And, yeah, he turned out to be a really nice guy. Yeah. 
interesting paradox there of you're just saying if he's a really nice guy, but he's also somebody that claimed to have like killed a bunch of people. <laughs> and how do you? Yeah, you know, I, I wonder how much of that was just sort of a thing he said to be the tough guy. I don't know. You know, yeah. it's really hard. It's one of those things when you're out in the world with the camera, and you're you know you're by nature kind of just approaching people that you don't know. You have no idea what they're like. I've met some truly crazy people who I can certainly say that were just like you know there are people I wanted to stay far far away from. But there are others who just seem to be kind of in difficulty and just be trapped in these positions that, you know, kind of makes it hard for them to get anywhere else. And you know, they'll say things and they act a completely different way when the camera comes out than when it's not out. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether the guy killed some guys or not, but I was willing to take him in my car after he told me that. And, you know, he could, he could have <laughs> still had a gun in his pocket and, like, stolen my car or something. But after I talked to him for about half an hour, I just, he seemed like a earnest, honest human being. And I just thought I kind of owed it to the universe to do a little favor for him that day so mm -hmm. yeah i think one good thing about portraiture like something like that you're doing i feel like you're honoring him in a way or you know just giving him well, your I, time I, is like a valuable thing i think like you're not blowing him off well yeah i mean you know for better or for worse i have a little bit of a platform right i'm not famous and i don't have you know 100 million followers but i have a few and he's kind of invisible to the world in most senses and i can show his story to someone that might you know care might kind of think differently about other people who who are similar to him i think it's kind of your responsibility as a photographer who, who does that kind of work to tell the stories of people who are invisible i'm sure you follow stacy kranitz mm -hmm. she's pretty well known for the documentary work that she's done in the south and I, I think a lot of people have read into her work as being you know a little exploitative and a little bit kind of fetishizing poverty and things like that but she's done a really nice job of showing a side of america that i think most middle-class people anywhere in the country whether it's in the south or the west or the northeast they just don't see it and she has quite a good platform for being able to to kind of show that they're real humans show that they have real motivation show that that they're there at least and i appreciate her work for that reason that's great as we wrap up here a couple more questions and i like to keep these couple of questions just on terms of maybe just advice like you would give to other photographers. One would be getting into or submitting for maybe an exhibit or galleries or even submitting work to a potential magazine. What advice do you have for that in terms of finding the best places to submit and how to do it well? Because I feel like, you know, there's all the whole pay to play th thing is out there and so you can burn a lot yeah, of money yeah. just submit to everything yeah i don't think that anybody should submit to everything i think that kind of like spray and pray approach is kind of a good way to tarnish what you do i think again it's a matter of being consistent and if you're consistent your work will be more legible to editors to gallerists over time and that's again a function of sort of understanding what you really care about and using your camera to tell that story the best way that you think you can and i think if you do that over a long enough period of time you're dedicated enough that people kind of get what you're talking about and they can get what you're talking about without words <laughs> i think that's really important more often than not i'm approached for commissions rather than vice versa that's pretty rare that i'll send a portfolio out and ask for a job it's more like hey would you like to shoot this thing because we know it kind of has something to do with your work right like mike.com approached me a couple months ago and i did like a, a month-long commission with them that really didn't have much to do with my typical work, but it was kind of 
tangential to it and they found me and they somehow knew about me and they did it that way. So but that's not to say you shouldn't submit to things that you're interested in. I just think if your web presence and your social media presence and all that is consistent enough, people get what you're kind of what you're good at shooting, it's just a lot easier to get the kind of work that you hope to get, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody would hire me to do fashion stuff because if you saw my work, it's just not there, right? So I would never submit to a fashion exhibition or, or whatever. Again, just consistency and, you know, doing that over a long period of time and really kind of just making sure that what you're talking about is legible, that you have a position on things, that you take a stand or something. It doesn't have to be a political stand, it doesn't have to be, but you have a point of view that's, that's clear and that's well articulated by your imagery. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. Last question is, what are some photographers you would recommend other people looking at? It could be, you know, like Stacey, you mentioned, or obviously could be any masters that you really love that you look at a lot for inspiration. My favorite guy is Brian Ulrich. He's just a really, really nice guy. He did a lot of mall stuff, Mm. a lot of retail stuff. His work has for a very long time been kind of really prescient critique on consumer culture so i just really appreciate the work that he does other than him man there's so many good photographers michael i know (laughs) i'll say my friend jamie ho is pretty interesting she's been out on the road with me quite a bit i really enjoy working with her and she's done quite a bit of work recently related to her family and kind of her american story she's a first generation chinese american immigrant so she shot a lot Mm. of stuff between hong kong guangzhou where her family comes from and south florida where she grew up and I think she's really kind of grown a lot in her kind of way of telling her own story in the past few years. I really like her. My friend Maggie Shannon is a really great portraitist, and she went to SVA. She did some portraits. I guess it's more sort of documentary work, but some really good portraits of shark hunters off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, where she's from, and just kind of done these really brilliant kind of saturated colors, brilliant high contrast portraits over the past few years that I really, really like. And I liked her stuff quite a bit. Another inspiration for me who I like quite a bit, who I don't think is very well known in, in the States, is a, an architectural photographer named Bass Princeton. He shot all over the world. And his thing is kind of showing how kind of encroaching cities, encroaching civilization on natural wild spaces kind of it's such a jarring, crazy thing. He's photographed like the edges of these cities that are built, you know, the crazy kind of superstructures built at the edge of a rainforest or at the edge of a desert or something. And there's just really striking images. He's also photographed a lot around the U.S. Very low-key, but very striking imagery of not commercial architecture, but he did this one shot of a gold-colored cubic 1980s, like, office tower, I think in Houston. And... <laughs> The way he shot it, it sort of just looks like the building isn't there at all. You can sort of see the horizon line across the building and through the building, and it's just a really beautiful, striking image. And it sort of makes that kind of architecture of corporations look very inhuman and and kind of scary futuristic. So I really like his stuff. It's very subtle, but it's very good. Cool. Well, thanks, man, for your time. Good to talk to you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Take it easy, man. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Musea podcast. If you would like to have access to all of our previous episodes, you can support us at patreon.com slash musea. We have two tiers, a $5 per month tier or a $10 per month tier. 
We will keep five to 10 episodes up on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud for free. And then after that, all of the old episodes will be on our Patreon page for our Patreon supporters. Uh, and you'll have access to every podcast episode we've ever done uh, if you're a supporter there. And uh, the reason we're doing a Patreon page is it just helps us cover some of our costs for professional editing, production, and we also want to be able to release the podcast more frequently. Right now, we can only afford to release two podcasts a month. We would like to make this a weekly podcast, but to do that, we have to pay our amazing editor to edit each episode. And so we just need some help covering that. But beyond that, we also want to grow the podcast to where we're doing in-depth reporting, where we can hire reporters and field journalists to go out and cover some stories for us regarding photography and things going on in the industry. And all that just takes money. And so the more you guys help us, the more we can work and build towards doing that with the podcast and creating some really unique, amazing content. Thanks so much to James Sweeting for editing this episode as always, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks.